welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, my name is Micah. If we don't know each other, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken, and I want to invite you to turn to the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be there. Uh, <clears throat> I was, we were with some friends last night, and uh, if you're new, we're in this series in Colossians, and over the last few weeks, um, we, have, we have been in the deep end of the pool. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, and we've touched on some pretty foundational, like uh, pretty big topics. We've talked about like the Bible, and what is it, and why is it, why, why do we study it? Uh, we've looked at things like uh, the atonement, and like what's happening at the cross, and these are, um, these are pillars of the Christian faith, uh, and I... I when we were with our friends last night, I realized something, something dawned on me that I hadn't really thought about before, and I wanted to sort of recognize that. Um, I don't know if you have felt a little cognitive dissonance or a little disequilibrium um, as we've been studying and as I've been offering some of these thoughts. Uh, in some ways, I'm um, maybe saying some things that you've never heard before about the resurrection or about the cross or about the Bible and um, I want to just like say out loud that I recognize that that may be a little unsettling at times for some of us. And um, uh, I'm your pastor, uh, and I try as much as I can to be the kind of person that's trustworthy, uh, where my motives are pure, and um, like the reason why we're doing these things and the reason why we're going in these places is because I want. Um, I want, I, I want good for you, and I want, um, I, want, I want you to grow, and I want you to, be, to think well about faith and about the Bible and about what it means to follow Jesus. Like, these are all things that I want for you. And so I hope that um, you, you, you trust that voice. Uh, I recognize that that's a huge ask. But um, I want to just say that out loud and, and recognize that that may be the case um, over the last few weeks. Maybe it was a little unsettling. I have two works of, of theology in my mind um, at, at the same time. One of them is quite old. Uh, it was written by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. It was a sermon and then a book called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And then on, on, on the other hand, uh, another recent book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And like these two ideas and these two ways of seeing and understanding God like couldn't be any further from one another and the implications of them and the outworking, like uh, it is absolutely paramount um, how we think about God. Like nothing shapes us more than the image of God that we believe to be true. Um, and I'm just convinced that the gospel is more beautiful and bigger and larger and more compelling than I ever have in my life. Um, and so I wanted to just sort of start with that this morning. I don't know if you've left the last few weeks feeling like, okay, uh, I'll think about that. Um, I, I've heard that from a few of you. So I wanted to just put that out there before we start. Is that, is that okay? Uh, okay. I don't think today is as, um, ca- what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, Disorienting, thank you. Jenna's, she's, Jenna, just, thank you. Every now and again, Jenna just feeds me lines. I don't think today will be as disorienting. Um, At least that's not my, that's not what I uh, anticipate. But you never know. Colossians chapter two. If you have your Bible, stand if you will. We're gonna begin in verse 16. Paul writes this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions in their, by their unspiritual mind. They have lost the connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning, we turn our attention to uh, these words, and I thank you for the living word, which is Jesus, resurrected, alive, uh, bringing resurrection anywhere and everywhere. I thank you for the written word, for these books and uh, the people who wrote them, for your involvement and inspiration of them. Thank you that uh, these words bear witness to the Christ. And God, I thank you for your spirit, which is alive and at work in the world, in this community, in our own lives. And I pray that uh, that spirit would make these words come alive in us, that they would not be two-dimensional, words, black and white words on a page, but that they would become part of who we are, that they would, uh, we would take them in and, and ingest them and that they would change us and transform us and challenge us and invite us to be the kinds of people that you've, uh, you've called us to be, that you've died for us to be, that you've made us to be, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said together, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so today... We're talking a little bit about habits and practices and, um, and why we do them. Uh, this is an all play. If you're new, I'm curious. Like you, can, you can play along. You can shout out. What are some of the habits and practices that religious, particularly Christian people, but not necessarily Christian people, what are some of the habits and practices that we participate in? Just shout some of them out. Pray. Pray. Thank you, Jenna. Say again. Sing. I thought you said drink, and I was like... Ah, let's go with sing from the back, all right? <laughs> Fast, yes, fasting of all sorts, food and other things. What else? Giving, Giving tithing, yeah, good. Quiet. quiet time, oh, the quiet time, yes, yes. What else? Communion. Say it again. Communion. Communion, for sure, the Eucharist, the Lord's table. Reading the Bible, for sure. Dang it, that was, that's what you were going to say. Nice job. Got to be quick on the draw. So a, a, a smattering, a, a host, a buffet of, of habits and practices that people, Christians and, and other religious people, often do for any number of reasons. Um, Paul, in his uh, letter to the Colossians, has entered into a portion of it where he's, he's, he's Having a conversation around some of these things, what are some of the habits and practices that these people were participating in that maybe were normal in their day and, and in their age? And he has a few words to say about them, right? 
Um, here's what I want to do this morning. Here's where we're going. I want to look at the content, like what is Paul actually saying, and then look at the context into which he's saying it, because context always determines meaning, right? So if Paul's using a certain set of words and saying something, content, and we understand the context into which he's writing, then we can understand the meaning of the words that he's using because of the context. And then I want to sort of translate, right? Um, this framework, by the way, content, context, uh, and meaning is a great way to sort of think about how you might read the Bible. What's being said, what's the context into which it was written, and then what does it mean because of that, right? And that's a great endeavor. We can always be looking at what did it mean for the original people who heard it first. That's a great thing to do, but it's not the last thing or it's not the only thing. There is not just one meaning of a text necessarily because the Bible is alive and active, it's breathing, it's doing something here and now, so then what does it mean for us? How do we translate that? What, what's true that was said then that's still true now for you and us today? So content, context, meaning, translation, right? That's where we're going this morning. Um, so let's start with content. What is Paul actually saying? Verse 16, he begins with the word therefore. Whenever therefore is there, you can always say what is therefore Therefore, right? He's hinging something. He's just said something, and so then he starts saying, because of that, now this. So what has he just said? You would have had to be here last week or read what we didn't read this morning. Last week we talked about Paul saying, um, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your flesh. You were dead in this old way of living, and now you are, have been made alive in Christ by faith. So you were dead in this old way of being in the world, and now something has happened, and you've been, a made, you've been made alive in Christ. The law that sort of condemned you, that stood against you, that, always, uh, that, that, that never fixed the problem, but just sort of mitigated the problem of sin, uh, which is the sacrificial system, he's saying that law has been canceled, it's been fulfilled, done away with, and the powers and the authorities that sort of held you captive or offered you this alternative way of thinking, which isn't gospel, isn't good news, isn't God, um, has been beaten and shown to be foolish, right? He says it's been put on display for all to see, the foolishness of this way of thinking. So because of that, Paul says, now, don't let anyone judge you because of what you eat or drink, a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath, right? A number of habits and practices that would have been normal for these people, now here's where Paul has Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. I would argue that he absolutely has this in his target. Like that's what he's talking about and there's really no way around it. But here's, here's the tension. One of the tensions we have to manage as Christians, as people of faith who follow Jesus on this side of the resurrection <clears throat> um, is this relationship to Torah and the Mosaic law. Oftentimes there is this sort of pejorative or negative uh, looking back on Torah and the law, which, which goes as far as being anti-Semitic in, in some circumstances, right? There are Christians on record who have, because of verses like this, looked back at Judaism, looked back at Torah, looked back at the law, and had a very anti-Old um, Testament or anti-law or even anti-Jewish sentiment. And there's a very fine line that we're walking here, and that's not where we're going. I wouldn't argue that Torah is bad or was bad or that it was useless or it's the enemy. No, I don't think that's what Paul's doing either. But it does mean we have to be honest with Paul, what Paul's actually saying here. He's saying that that was a part of the story, but it is not the entirety of the story. He's saying that that was one chapter in the story, but the book has moved on. 
And I don't think we can, we can uh, not say that. I think that's what Paul is actually saying. Uh, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite New Testament writers, scholars, he talks about, um, fifth, he calls it fifth act hermeneutics. And he understands the Bible in like a large sweeping scope where there are six different acts in the play, right? The first act was creation. The second act was the fall. The third act was Israel. The fourth act was Jesus. The fifth act is you and I in the church, right? We have the first few uh, pages of the script in the fifth act, but we're actually writing it now. We're participating in the play, knowing what we know about the rest of the play and having that inform what we do now. But then the sixth act, the final act, is the kingdom. So N.T. Wright says, you and I, the church, we live between Jesus and the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates. We're doing the work of the church now. Here's the point I'm trying to make, though. Israel is one act in the play. Torah was one part of that act, but the play has moved on. And we are now in a different act, in a different part of the story. This is precisely why Paul says in our passage, these are a shadow, these things of the law, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And the book of Hebrews says the same thing. The law is only a shadow of the things that are coming not the realities themselves. So for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So Paul says, don't let anyone judge you because of whether or not you participate, whether or not you honor Sabbath or dietary laws or any number of things that were a part of the Mosaic law. Don't let anyone judge you because of that. Then he says in verse 20, he reminds them, you've died with Christ and the things of this world, whatever old portion of that. So, why do you keep acting as if you haven't? Why do you keep acting as if these rules still apply to you? Don't taste this, don't touch that, don't handle that, right? That's kind of the argument Paul is making in this passage. So that's the content. And, here's the, and, and here, he, uh, or, or the second part, this don't taste, don't touch, don't handle that, he's likely having a go at people who have added on to Torah, added on to the, the requirements of the law, which religious people never do, right? Where we hear something and then we sort of add our interpretations onto it and we make, it, uh, we make everybody agree with it and everybody adhere to it. This is, by the way, a little bit about covenant history, why covenanters have said we're not a confessional church, right? Scripture is our creed and we, 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 uh, we, we uphold the authority of the Scripture but no one particular person's interpretation of that Scripture which is why there's freedom in Christ. Because once you start adding people's interpretations of certain scriptures and say you have to agree with these things, now we're one step removed from the altar in which we meet the risen Christ. So we say scripture is our creed, we keep coming back to that. Religious people have a a knack for adding sort of rule after rule on top of certain things. And so Paul likely is saying, to anyone among you who is added to Torah, saying don't touch this, don't taste that, don't handle this, don't handle that, He's like, you've died to that way of living and you've been raised with Christ. There is a newfound freedom in Christ, so don't be held captive to those things. That's his argument that he's making, right? That's the content. Now, context. Why is he saying this? Because he's writing to a small group of people, a group of new believers, a young church, who's trying to understand how to live as faithful people following the resurrected Messiah in the world some of whom were Jewish and some of whom were not Jewish. So for the Jews among them, it's a very real temptation to drift back to where you've come from, right? 
We as humans follow the path of least resistance. We all do it in any number of circumstances. So if you were Jewish and you grew up in this system and this way of being, this religious life, and you've now been, you've been raised to walk in a new way of life, you're free in Christ, what would be very easy for you to do is to sort of slip back into the things that you, were, you adhered to previously. Do you celebrate Sabbath? Do you eat kosher? Do you, right? Any number of things. Paul's saying, don't do that. You don't have to. You can if you want to, but don't hold everybody hostage to it. Right? If you want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, you can, but you don't have to. And if your brother, this is into Romans now, if your brother or sister has a problem with that and you invite them over for dinner, well, don't put them in an uncomfortable situation. Just don't eat meat sacrificed to idols when you're with them. Right? If you want to drink, you can, but if somebody has a problem with that, take community and relationship over your own personal freedoms. Right? Now we're working out Paul and what he's doing here later. But for the Jewish people among them, that's what, he's, that's what he's saying. And then for the pagans among them, these are people, many of whom, have converted to Christianity. And there's a very real sense in which, in the ancient world, it was a buffet of immoral choices. Uh, I, maybe it's no different than today, but uh, I think in some ways it is a little different. Um, sorry, there I am. Uh, the, the, let's just say that the waters of morality were anything but clear, in the, in the ancient world. And so for many who've converted, there's a very high moral code in Jewish life. So if you've been a person who's lived just, you know, crazy town, like no boundaries anywhere, and you convert to this Christianity, this new way of following Jesus, and there is a previous version of that or a previous iteration of that that has a very high moral code where all the rules and the regulations are very clear... That actually might sound good. That actually might be something uh, of value and might be tempting for you to say, oh no, we're going we're gonna, to, you, you know all the rules, you know who's in, who's out, you know what the boundaries are. There's, there's no lack of clarity. And that actually feels good sometimes. So for Paul, he's saying, listen, gang, it's into this context that he offers these words about habits, practices that would have been a part of their religious life. Everybody tracking so far? Now, here's where I want to translate a little bit into, uh, uh, or move towards translation and meaning for us. It seems that for Paul and the religious people of Paul's day, that there is a very real struggle between the newfound freedom of being in Christ and the religious rules and regulations, habits and practices, which become rules and regulations, of the past that so many had come to know as normal. Thankfully, you and I, we've moved well beyond religious rules and regulations and, the me- and those being the means by which we judge each other. Thankfully, that is not a problem for us. We're like rules and regulations, habits and practices, which become rules and regulations, and then the means by which we judge one another's worthiness or holiness or, or value or worth. Thankfully, we don't do that. And thankfully, we have moved well beyond the comfort and safety of like fundamentalist understandings of those things and live squarely in freedom in Christ, right? That's good. I want to introduce three ideas that I'm going to work out as we sort of move to translating what is Paul saying here. We're going to be using these for the rest of our time together. And the three ideas are this. Number one, habits and practices. Number two, desires and motivation. And number three, encounters and experiences. So, Habits and practices, desires and motivations, 
encounters, and experiences. The interplay between these three ideas, I would argue, is at the heart of what Paul is saying in Colossians, the the passage we're studying. And I would argue that how you order these or, or your perspective, how you see them, makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I think it was a book that became a movie, but the movie Notting Hill, if anyone has seen that, there's this great scene where uh, uh, the two characters, there's an event that's happened, uh, there's been a sleepover, okay, (laughs) and uh, the next morning, one of them is a movie star, and the next morning the paparazzi shows up at the door, and they're banging on the door, and it becomes clear to the world that there has been a sleepover, all right, everybody tracking? And the one person says, like, sees that event from this perspective and says something to the effect of, I wish that this sleepover had never happened. And the other person sees it from a very different perspective and says, respectfully, I will cherish this sleepover forever. (laughs) Same event, right? Two very different perspectives. And your perspective on the thing makes all the difference in the world. I would argue the same is true for these three ideas, habits and practices, motivations and desires, encounters and experiences. Let me flesh this out. Paul is having a go at habits and practices that were present for Christians in Colossae. Whether you were Jewish or you were pagan, Paul is critiquing religious habits and practices, Sabbath Sabbath days, festivals, dietary laws, temple worship. The question, the million dollar question is why? Why is he critiquing these things? Why is he saying you're not to be judged by those things, people holding those things over you? Why? Is Paul saying these are inherently bad or evil? Should they be avoided at all costs for new Christians? Is Paul making a judgment about the inherent value or worth of these habits and practices? I don't think he is. I think he's doing something different than that. I don't think Paul is saying that these are bad or that they were bad. Rather... The desires and the motivations behind the participating in those habits or practices is what Paul is critiquing. It's the question behind the question. If you hear nothing else today, like tune in for the next 30 seconds, because this is like all I want to say to you today. Religious fundamentalism, wherever you find it, whether it be in ancient Judaism or in modern day Christianity, is rooted in fear and a flawed understanding of the value of religious habits and practices. I'm going to say it again. Religious fundamentalism, wherever you find it, whether it be in Paul's day and a a zealous group of religious people that are holding over newfound Christians who are free in Christ, whether you find it there or here in modern-day American Christianity, Religious fundamentalism is rooted in fear and a flawed understanding of the value of habits and practices. These habits and practices then become rules and regulations and they become the means by which we judge one another. They become the means by which we determine how far up the ladder you've gone, where in the community you are, what value you have, whether or not you're holy, righteous, good. It's rooted in fear. And it's based on a flawed understanding of habits and practices. This is at the heart of what Paul's critiquing, and I would argue that it is as alive today, 2,000 years ago, as it was in Paul's day. In fact, many of you are here 
because you have found the bankruptcy in these kinds of communities or these settings. So, here's how it works. And pay attention to the way that these three things are connected. We desire and are motivated to do these habits and practices because we think God wants them or we need them to have an encounter or an experience with God. I'll say that again. We, are desire, we desire and we're motivated to do these habits and practices because we think that God needs them or wants them for us to have an encounter or an experience or a relationship with God. Friends, the, the taxonomy that I have just put in front of you, the order that I've just put in front of you is fatal and it will never produce life. It can't because it's rooted in fear and control and striving. We're afraid that God isn't as good as Jesus said he is. We're afraid that God is keeping score. We're afraid that if we don't do enough, pray enough, fast enough, read our Bibles enough, God will be angry or upset or disappointed or any number of things. And so we're afraid. And so we control the situation. We read more, we fast more, we pray more, we go to church more, we sing more, we say more, we take matters into our own hands because we can control it. And we strive for what's already ours. That's the foolishness. That is the irony of it all. Paul's point here, and all over the New Testament, is that that is exactly backwards. We desire and we're motivated to do these habits and practices because we think God wants them, God needs them, in order for us to have an experience and encounter a relationship with God. Listen to the prophets. They say to Israel, do you think God needs the blood of bulls and goats? Do you think God wants your sacrifices? You keep doing them over and over and over again, but it's not changing you. God doesn't want those. You've missed the point. You have it completely backwards. This is the revolution. This is the more beautiful gospel. What we want, what we long for, what I would argue that our souls are made for, which is an encounter, an experience, a relationship with God, is already ours if we want it. No striving necessary. No doing necessary. No ticking any boxes is needed. What you long for, what we want, what our souls are made for, is already yours. This is the, the, the profound nature of the prodigal son in the story that Jesus tells. What he says to the older brother, everything I had was always yours. And I would add, if you had only received it as such. Now here's the key. Here's the shift that I want to offer to us this morning. From our encounter, our experience, our relationship with the divine, from that place grows a motivation to commune with God, a desire to know God more, a motivation to be near the heart of God, a desire to hear God's voice more clearly. And so then the natural pathway for those things to happen become habits and practices. It's a complete turn. It's a complete shift. We don't do these things because we think God needs them or needs them or wants them or we can't have God unless we do these things. Rather, good news, friends. That's the good news. It's already yours. What ha God has made possible what you already what you what you long for, it's already yours. And so because of that, from this place of having an encounter and experience a relationship with God, what wells up inside of us is a desire, a motivation to move closer 
to commune with, to be present to, to hear more clearly. And so habits and practices flow from that. When we get that backwards, we become a community, a religious community that uses behavior to judge one another's holiness and righteousness and worthiness. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You don't have to do anything. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's free. There are no tick boxes. There are no checks. There are no requirements. It's just faith. You say yes to what's already been offered to you. And from that place of gratitude and, and delight and joy grows a motivation and a desire to be near, to hear, to be close to, to walk with, to commune with the divine. And so then we ask the question, how does one do that? Oh, habits, practices, prayer, reading your Bible, fasting, silence, quiet times. These things are not the grade of your holiness They don't determine how good you are or how spiritual you are or how close to God you are. They might be connected to how close you might feel to the divine, but no one's keeping score. (laughs) Good news, everybody. Good news. No one's keeping score. God is not keeping score. You don't have to do these things in order to to get anything. I think that is such good news. I think that is so freeing. It's always the why before what. Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. Many of you have probably read it. It's a business book. He talks about getting the right people on the bus. He says, you always hire who before what. His point is, you got to get the right people, the right person, the right culture, and then you can determine, you can teach the what, right? So always who before what. I'm translating that, and I'm saying in this case, Always why before what? Why are you here? We started with that question. Why are you here? Do you feel guilty about something so you have to come to this to like appease some guilt? Or do, you, do you believe God is angry? And if you don't come, that God will be unhappy with you? That God will be disappointed? that someone in the community will think less of you? Why are you here? Why do you do any of the practices that you do? That right there is the key that unlocks the whole box. As we close, I wanna offer, I wanna just make sure you hear a couple of things. First and foremost, Habits and practices, they move and they shift. They're not a formula. What I mean by that is, you may have had a season of your life where like mornings and quiet have been life-giving for you, and then kids showed up, and the last thing you need less of is sleep. (laughs) Young moms, young dads in the room, you don't have to feel guilty that you're not waking up early to be with Jesus. Jesus is with you in your sleep. It may have served you, it may have been life-giving for a season, 
And then when it's not life-giving anymore, let it go. It's for you. You're not made for it. It's made for you. This is the conversation Jesus has about the Sabbath. It doesn't rule you. It doesn't master you. It doesn't call the shots. It helps and it has helped and praise the Lord when it has. But when it stops being life-giving, let it go. Whatever the habit, whatever the practice is, whatever the, whatever the ones that are life-giving for you, whatever, the ones, whatever are the ones that are moving you in your spiritual life, say yes to them. Pursue them. But don't feel guilty if something changes. You change. You're a verb. You can't, I can't freeze you. You can't freeze me. We all grow. We all change. So when it does, hold it loosely, friends. And whatever serves and, and draws you near and helps you commune and helps you listen better, say yes to those things. And when, it's, when it doesn't anymore, find what does. Secondly, I'll say, no one's keeping score. God is not keeping score. That is not the nature of God, period. And I don't want it to be the nature of this community, which is why I'm saying these things. Someone may be keeping score in here, but you don't answer to them, okay? To all the eights in the room, you know what we tell those people, okay? You don't answer to them. And if someone's keeping score, that's probably because they've got some things they're working out, and so we give them grace. But God is not keeping score. Lastly, I'll say, please don't hear me saying that spiritual habits and practices don't have value. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying when they're motivated by the wrong thing, they can be lethal, and they can kill you and the communities in which you're a part of. That's what he's saying, but he isn't saying that they're not valuable. So I'm saying habits and practices, they are of great value when they, when they come from this welling up, this joy, this abundance that we found in our rootedness, in our freedom, in our anchoring in Christ because we want to know God more. Oh, now we're talking. Now we're cooking with oil, as they say. What's the motivation, the desire behind why you're participating in any of the things you're doing. I'll close with this. Robert Frost, great poet. The poem he's most known for, Two Roads Diverged Into a Wood. I took the one less traveled, and it has made all the difference in the world. I think there's always two things on sale for you to consider. One way, this is Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, it's life and death. This is how it always works. As it relates to this conversation, Paul's saying, friends, listen, you're free. You're free in Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ and you are in Christ. You're full. It's yours. From that place, let joy and grace and, and, uh, and, uh, and compassion well up. Yes, but no one's keeping score. God is not angry, petty, and keeping score somewhere. So why do you do the things you do? That is the question. Two roads diverged into a wood. I'm taking this one, and I think it's making all the difference in the world. And I offer it to you this morning to think about. For me, nothing, more, nothing has given me more life 
than pursuing this and understanding God in this way. I'm more alive now than I ever have been, friends. And it's a lot to do with this kind of thinking and these ideas. So, I love you and I want good things for you. That's why I'm saying these things. So, think about it. You may disagree with me. You may think I've totally misinterpreted what Paul's saying. Okay. I don't think I'm too far off, though. So let me offer a word of prayer. God, this morning, we gather in this place for all kinds of different reasons, but I think at least varying degrees of commitment, curiosity, wondering about who you are, what you're like, who this Jesus was, what this invitation to follow him really means. And so as we think about habits and practices and things that we might turn our hearts towards or intend our spirits towards, and think about why we do those things, I pray, God, that you would make clear for us, that you would turn on lights, that you would show yourself to be exactly who you are, and nothing less than that. And so, God, if there are things that have need to be exposed about our motivation and our desire. Be kind. Remind us that you are love, that you are good, that you are kind, compassionate, long-suffering, even when we miss it. So Holy Spirit, in the next few moments, would you speak the words that we need to hear? We give you this silence as a a commitment to the fact that we believe you're still speaking, that you're still revealing yourself, you're still offering yourself to us. And so, do that now, I pray. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awaken community or on twitter awaken community see you next time